Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. The people watching and listening probably might not know too much about you, so if you could just tell us you know, in a nutshell, like what's your, what's your story? Oh God. Um, well, I'm a, currently I'm a writer and, and theorist and film director. I've, this is my 10th book. Um, I've also directed a few films as well. Um, I have a background. Um, I graduated from Skidmore college in New York and I have a back, a fairly strong background in athletics. Um, after college, I, I played professional basketball for a year in Europe. And then I was involved in finance. I, I owned a real estate company, in, in, a real estate and mortgage company in Boston for about six or seven years after college. And then I just decided that really wasn't what I wanted to do. And then I started writing. And I've been doing that for um, now six or seven years. And I actually live in South America. That's, that's why the, I've had trouble getting on. The, the, the Wi-Fi down here is terrible. I, I am. Um, and that's it. So this this uh, book is, um, I don't know if John mentioned, but it's the first of a trilogy that John and I are calling the Hypermodern Trilogy. And the first segment is Hypermodernity hyper and the End of the World. And that's basically in a nutshell. I could probably, it's definitely uh, longer than that, but that's it in a nutshell. And thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. So John has actually been on my YouTube show in the past. So some listeners might know a little bit more about him. So sure. given that, I think it maybe we'll we'll just carry on a little bit more with you and then we'll we'll talk about both of you guys and, and the book. Um could you tell us, Brian, a little bit um what about the books you've written in the past? Like what are the you know, how how would you describe them or or the overarching sure. focus of your your previous books? Yeah, I, I guess my inter I mean all of my books kind of deal with the social effects of, of neoliberalism. You could call it kind of like tracing some kind of map of the integration of neoliberal capitalism with computational technologies and kind of analyzing that and also the, ideolo the ideological apparatus that supports it. So, for instance, my first book was called Postscript Unboxing. And it was a, it's a book about the historical decline of boxing as it relates to the transformation of industrial capitalism to post-industrial capitalism. So That's it was a great kind book. of, um, yeah, so oh, it's, it's, it's an interesting oh, book. Um, yeah, so that, that's, for instance, one, and I use boxing as kind of a, a way to tell the story of the transformation of, of capitalism, the introduction of a whole new array of um, microelectronic technologies and new forms of media, and how that affected not just the sport of boxing, but the, the human body. Um, you know, boxing reached a high point during the, the phase of industrial capitalism, what, what Foucault called disciplinary societies. This was a, a system of spatial organization where different, um, different spaces of a society, like like the 
the hospital, the military barracks, the nuclear family, the school, and the boxing gym. These were analog spaces that 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 shared in in the disciplinary social edifice. As that started to break down after World War II, and, and now it's completely, I mean, in the era of hypermodernity, it's completely fragmented. So boxing, for instance, ceases to be a type of manual labor homologous to factory labor. And now it's like a, a workout for yuppies in, in downtown cities. So that's what that book was about. Um, it's, it's definitely longer and more complicated than that, but that's the basic gist of it. And then I've, I wrote two books about gentrification. Um, the, the more interesting one is called There Is No Such Thing as Boston, Gentrification and the, and the Disappearance of a City. And that's basically similar in the sense tracing um, you know, one of the things that we talk about in this book is how hypermodernity is a system of cities. It's not like the like the even though we are seeing um, a nationalist reactionary backlash right now. You know, Trump is a perfect example of that. Um, ultimately, the nation state is in big trouble right now. It cannot contain the flows of capital and technology. And it's essentially so what's what's replacing it is a system of cities and gentrification is the process that is integrating these cities into the, you know, into the hypermodern, hypermodern order, you could say. Um, so that was that book. I wrote another book called The Meaning of Trump, um, which was published by Zero Books. And that was an analysis of the Trump presidency, um, how his election was a response to the trajectory of, of neoliberalism since the 1980s. So have most of your books wrote, been published by like traditional publishers or self-published or combination? I've, I've a couple have been like, for instance, Meaning of Trump was published by Zero Books, which is a right, which is a, a British publisher. But but the majority of them have have been self-published. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And what what has your experience been like uh, with that? Um, having a little bit of experience with in both worlds and also because, you're, you know, you write about these topics and reflect about these topics, the effects of technology and you know, the fragmentation of culture. These are also recurring themes on my show and, and what I tend to write a lot about also myself. So um, we would be interested to hear, you know, a little bit maybe about your experience. That's something that I talked about, John. I talked about with John also last time we talked is, is um, yeah, just experiences and reflections on how publishing is changing. Yeah. Um <laughs> So I, I don't know if I totally understand the question. You want to know about how? Oh, yeah. No, that wasn't really a uh, well-phrased question. It was more just a general prompt for to let you know of, of, about some other kind of clusters of, of themes that are live and, and game for us to also discuss as they come up. Uh, so that's cool. That's cool, Brian. That was a good kind of summary of your own kind of background and, and, and who you are. And you're, you're calling in from South America right now. Is that right? I am. Yes. I, I'm in Peru right now. This is where I live now. Right, right. That's pretty cool. I think John told me that you you uh, you made some money in business, and then you decided to fuck off to South America and, and live uh, expat expat intellectual life. Is that the is that the narrative here? It's kind of like that. Maybe maybe not quite that simple, but something like that. Yeah. And how do you find that? I really love Peru a lot. It's it's a great country, great people. It's beautiful land. Uh, um, I own a business down here as well, or a center in. Uh, I'm actually at the moment, I'm in the sacred valley outside of Cusco, but I live in the city of Iquitos, which is the major city of the Peru Amazon. It's a city of about 500, 600,000 people. And it's a very, I mean, I'm actually working on a book about the, 
the history of Iquitos. It's a very, very interesting city. It has, um, interestingly enough, in the late 1800s, up until about 1915, Iquitos was an incredibly important city because it, it was the major producer of rubber for the entire world. So it was almost like a mini Silicon Valley for about 20 years. I mean, not, not quite like that, but some, some, something like that. Um, and then as the rubber industry, you know, as they started to make synthetic rubber and as seeds were exported to Southeast Asia, the, the, the rubber market in the Amazon essentially collapsed. And Iquitos was kind of, you know, it, it totally collapsed from its, from its glory years. And now it's kind of seeing a little bit of resurgence right now. Um, but it's a very interesting place. And I really like living there. And, you know, I'm, I do get back to America about twice a year to visit because I'm, I'm very close to my family. But yeah, no, it's, it's Peru's a wonderful country. It really. All is. right. Awesome. So good to know a little bit more about you. I guess we should talk about the book then. Sure. I, I did have some time to, to read through it. Definitely looks like an, an interesting and ambitious project. Maybe we could just start by you folks could tell the listeners and watchers uh, just briefly in a nutshell what the book is about and, and kind of its main thesis or theses. All right, let me uh, step in here and just describe basically what's going on is that um, there are these three structurally distinct epochs. There are, of course, more of them before that, like if you count the Enlightenment and, and so forth. Uh, or Foucault's Sovereign Age, which is even before that, um, which are modernity, post-modernity, and now hyper-modernity. Um, each one has its own internal structure, kind of like a geological epoch. Uh, in the age of modernity, um, the transcendental signifieds, or the iconotypes, as I call them, Derrida calls them transcendental signifieds, were transformed and interiorized into something called the hyperdimensional object, which is a simultaneous a simultaneity of unfolding space and time together into a single object that you cannot perceive with your five senses. You have to infer it. Um, so it's, at first it started as a very abstract art and people, a lot of people just didn't get it. It was the shock of the new. Uh, now we see it hanging on the walls, uh, dentist's office, uh, you know, all taken for granted now. But then uh, that epoch, the epoch of modernity, um, which really came out of the, uh, the house monetization, the Hausmannization of Paris and the transformation of Paris into, as Walter Benjamin called it, the capital of the 19th century. Um, as it remained all the way down through modernity to post-modernity, where the art world then shifted to New York. And once you get a tectonic shift uh, as a center, um, a new place comes in. Now you have a new epoch because there are new rules to the game now. And uh, Paris just didn't get uh, contemporary art. Paris, uh, for all its philosophical greatness, um, provide, you know, Paris, Foucault and, and uh, Derrida and all these guys, but they didn't get contemporary art for some, for some reason. And there's a huge irony here because the Germans uh, were the first to understand it, coming out of Dusseldorf with Joseph Boyce and uh, all those guys in that work, Gerhard Richter. Um, they were, for the first time, the Germans had always been seen as cultural laggards. They always seemed to be behind all the developments that were going on in Europe until post-modernity with contemporary art, where uh, simultaneously the art world shifted to Dusseldorf uh, with Joseph Boyce and to uh, New York, of course, with the abstract expressionist Mark Rothko, Jackson Pollock, and all that. So we get post-modernity. Uh, and that unfolds in the entire world interior of post-modernity is the shopping mall. Um, I grew up in the shopping mall. Uh, that is the retail space that originally came out of uh, the, the arcades of modernity. 
as, as Benjamin talks about in his arcades project. Um, so that was the world interior there, and everything was based on analog technology. Now, once the internet came along in 1995, um, noticed that it, the shopping mall uh, just disintegrated. And now we have all these rotting relics, uh, you know, like the Rust Belt, where we had something happened there that is just now made up of ghosts. It's all gone. Same thing with uh, the creation of the internet as the new world interior of hypermodernity. And you can call it whatever you want, meta-modernity. One guy calls it digimodernism. Uh, but they all pretty much agree that a shift has taken place here in the mid-90s that we've been in for the past 20 or so years to hypermodernity, where we have this world uh, that is based on deworlded individuals, to borrow a term from Heidegger, individuals who are cut off from their localities and their world horizons, and they exist as signifiers or avatars inside this world interior now. So everyone's an avatar now. It's an age of narcissism, selfie sticks, likes, and so forth. Um, and everyone is sort of um, has to fend for themselves. And we have the disintegration of community everywhere. This wouldn't have come along. There wouldn't have been any need for Facebook if community had not already been disintegrated. Exactly. Um, exactly. These, yes. These, yeah, these technologies came along for a reason. So yeah, that's, that's the, the, I, the, the head right Facebook, Facebook didn't disintegrate community. Facebook is a sign that community had already been disintegrated. You know what I mean? It's, it's, right. It came in after the fact. We can blame it on Facebook. Yep. And of course, Facebook radically accelerates that collapse of the local, that collapse of the place. But the fact of the matter is the local, the place, the concrete, this was in big trouble for a while. And Facebook kind of comes about to, to, to essentially alert the, to alert people that it's no longer there. So yes, absolutely, John. So real quick, I'm getting some feedback from the audience that uh, Brian, your mic might be a little bit low. So either if you could turn up your volume on your mic or make like make the mic more sensitive okay. or just move your face closer to the mic or just speak louder, whichever you, okay. whichever you prefer. Okay, sure. Um, okay. So how, I mean, how would your concept of hypermodernity be different than what most people have in their mind when they think of postmodernity? Do you want me to take that, John, or do you want to go? Yeah, no, I thought he was asking you. That's why I'm going to go ahead. Either one, either well, one I, or both. I think the main difference between postmodernity and hypermodernity is the technological apparatus that is associated with hypermodernity. In postmodernity, you don't have the infiltration of digital technologies into every nook and cranny of society, not just productive spaces, but into our social life, into our personal relationships into our biology so with hyper i mean the way that i because i i come from somewhat of a economic background so the way that i would describe hypermodernity is an integration of transnational capitalism with computational logic that that would be my definition of hypermodernity and from that you get all types of effects along the artistic literary cultural planes but that's ultimately what's happening at the base economically with hypermodernity is you have an integration of the logic of capital with with data with computational logic and when these two things come together initiated with the release of the internet in 1995 to the public this is when hypermodernity as a era starts to gestate starts to mobilize and now that we're in the second decade of the 21st century i mean it is here i mean it it is here it is everywhere it is infiltrating into society it is it, it is the, 
everywhere, basically. Um, so that's that's how I, I would say it. Now, post-modernity, which follows from modernity, which is a collapse of meta-narratives, um, you you cannot compare once once you get once this kind of technology becomes available to society. I mean, smartphones, you're, you're walking around with the computational power of, of a NASA computer. I mean, the average guy in the street is, is doing this now, what happened in the 1950s. So that's how I would demarcate the main differential between post-modernity and hyper-modernity. There's a continuity, but also with the introduction of this technology, there's also a radical break as well. John? Yeah, there's also this idea that like you mentioned there, the post-modernity, as Leo Tard famously put it, is based on the, the disintegration of all historical grand meta-narratives. They are no longer to be taken serious because look what just happened, you know, with World War II, with everybody competing with these grand meta-narratives. So um, they became delegitimized. People stopped writing books like Spengler's Decline of the West, uh, totalizing encyclopedically learned uh, tomes, explaining the entirety of the whole planet. That became regarded with skepticism. And, uh, and so those kinds of scholars uh, really just disappeared. The, the world-renowned, uh, very well-read scholar who knows a, a, something about everything disappeared in post-modernity for, for the most part, except for a few rare examples like Marshall McLuhan and, and Joseph Campbell. Those, those guys are a little different. But in hyper-modernity now, I don't think that uh, this is the case anymore. Irony has kind of like, gone out the window now. People are genuinely looking for meaning and looking for new brand meta narratives that will make sense out of what's happening. That's so uh, there's a new faith and trust in brand meta narratives. There, they're not just they're no longer dismissed. Um, and so that's one of the big structural differences. So am I right to sense that your book Hyper Modernity is your own attempt to both of you to kind of usher in your own type of a bit, yeah, Spang Spengler esque, yeah, uh, grand uh, meta narrative. These ski talks, you know, it's just, that that kind of thing is regarded as old fashioned, I suppose. But um, really, in hyper modernity, there's there's an all inclusiveness about hyper modernity. It, it sort of has inherited the West's entire signifier overload tradition as a giant junkyard. Uh, think of Anselm Kiefer, you know, at La Repos. It's a giant junkyard of signifiers that we can draw from at any time. You can pull out any art style you want, such as the artist Mary Church. She was very good, uh, incredibly talented at uh, channel surfing through any art style you can think of. Realism, surrealism, uh, abstract expressionism. That's the type of artist that we find in hypermodernity where they're, it's not just one single style. These are not one-trick ponies anymore. Um, so there's that difference, and it's, uh, it's a very big one, this cultural overload and this junk heap that you can pull from. You can pull grand meta-narrative out of that junk heap, make use of that. Let's take another look at it. Um, art styles and all that. So this totalizing inheritance of the West's, all the West signifiers and the facility of artists and thinkers to make use of them uh, in very concrete ways and to produce very concrete results. Um, so that's very different from the postmodern distrust of those things. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, when you think about it technically, the the internet is widely associated with causing a variety of different fragmentations, which are severe, and and that's certainly happening in some sense. On the other hand, 
if you think about what it's like to write or to think or to speak uh, as an intellectual with the benefit of the internet, so long as one kind of gives one's gives oneself over to uh, the unique forms of research and archiving and assemblage that that digital tools allow you to perform, if you fully give yourself over to that and you don't allow yourself to be kind of beholden or or tamed or kind of domesticated by uh, more traditional notions of, of, of how to write or how to, how to produce, then in a weird way, like the intellectual activity actually becomes more smooth. You actually do, it's not, it's less fragmented. It's actually easier to write books that take a, 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 a grand sweep or to that unify or synthesize a variety of different disciplines. It's actually easier to do that now than ever. So in a weird way, there's kind of these, um, countervailing pressures of, of fragmentation or, you know, uh, kind of centrifugal forces and kind of synthetic universalizing possibilities or, or centripetal forces at work all at the same time. Do you sense something like that? Yeah. People are looking for narratives. I mean, that's, that's the thing they want now a grand totalizing narrative. Um, and we get things like, you know, is the possibility with, um, all the world's cities, are in process of disintegration. Um, eventually, they will they will be flooded under sea levels, uh, rising sea levels over the next two or three centuries anyway. So there's a basic mistrust there uh, and a disintegration of these cities. And the entire thing, uh, the entire planet now, though, has been unified by this technology. The Earth exists on the inside of technology for the first time ever. It's been totally captured by the human umwelt. Um, now, what happens when the Earth is encased inside of a kind of technical exoskeleton, new possibilities emerge for things like, what, what about the possibility of, uh, for, the, for the first time ever, of a, of a single planetary religion coming out of all this, um, unifying all these cultural signifiers? And that's what we're doing with all these deworlded individuals who are coming up from their local horizons and traditions. We're trading and swapping signifiers. It's like Deleuze talking about creating a rhizome with, with the wasp and the orchid, uh, crossing genes, splicing them and creating a rhizome between them. We're creating all these rhizomes now out of these cultural junkyards. And so something new and interesting is going to come out of that. I think it's going to be a, a totalizing thing, something planetary. Um, I think we're headed for a new age where locality is one thing and those traditions are kept and remembered but um, they're going to be encased inside of a, of a whole new narrative. It could be a new religion. Uh, it could be a return, of, as we say in the book, uh, of a new kind of axial age, like Carl Jaspers' axial age, 500 B.C. to 200 B.C., which across the board was filled with philosophers like Pythagoras and Confucius and Latu. And, um, you know, all of these guys lived at about the same time, and they all were responding to the crisis of the first generation of civilization, which was Egypt and ancient Sumer, where you had these behemoths with gigantic state religions that were absolutely official. Um, but a lot of individuals didn't like these state religions, and we start seeing disaffection. Uh, when the pharaoh Akhenaten decides to break away from uh, Egypt and found for the first time ever the world's first utopian city, clearly um, he, he wants to found his own religion. He's, there's a total dissatisfaction with the state priesthood of the god Amun. You can see the same thing already in Gilgamesh, in the Gilgamesh epic, when he is offered by the goddess Inanna uh, marriage with her, which is essentially be my priest of my cult, which is the official state religion of Uruk, 
he says, I ain't doing that. There's gonna, I'm going to go on a vision quest, find something else. And those guys are precursors to the Axial Age, where we get uh, 800 BC in India, people like Yajnavalkya coming along and teaching the individual tools of self-salvation now, uh, yoga in this case. Uh, that you don't have to follow the Brahmin priests and their official rituals anymore. Here now are the tools for you to save yourself if you would like them. And that's what happened in the Axial Age. And uh, Brian made the point in, in this book that we might be entering into a kind of second Axial Age where we see all these new kinds of thinkers offering new tools of self-salvation to now the dying behemoths of these ancient cities, uh, these megalopolitan nation states and cities that are slowly disintegrating. Uh, real quick, guys, I just want to let you know that I'm getting a little feedback. So well, I think what I'm going to ask you guys to do is uh, when you're not talking, just turn off your mic, I think, and then just turn it back on when you are ready to talk. Okay. So, okay, so help us help us think this through. Like if if the if the city is the location or site of modern culture, like what is the what is the site of hyper modernity? What is the site of hyper modern culture? Is it just cyberspace? Yeah, the, that's exactly right. It's that it's that interior, uh, which creates a kind of extension of the human nervous system across the planet. But that is uh, one interior. There's also the exterior shell of technology, the, the exoskeleton of technology that is enclosed and encased the planet inside a web of technological relations. So there are a couple of layers here uh, mm. to the world interior uh, of hypermodernity that it is creating. Right. And have you given any thought, though, to how as digital culture advances or accelerates, it seems to me that people are becoming increasingly adept at carving out cultures or uh, islands of social cohesion that seem to me kind of new and seem to me kind of like more stable and even more more. Uh, down to earth or concrete than s- some of the quote unquote communities that have defined the internet up, up until now. How stable can they? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it seems to me that up until now, the you know the internet has been largely dominated by things like Facebook and Twitter and this kind of large, diffuse um, you know sense of of community, which is really just severe atomization and alienation. But it seems to me that now, right now, in part stimulated by kind of certain moral panics around political correctness and things like that. It seems to me that people are now taking more refuge in private communities of various kinds, whether it be the discord forums or uh, private group DM chats and subscriber only platforms. So in some sense, like the rise of the content creator, for instance, who carves out their own community and has their own fan base and then kind of sustains that community. What you're actually seeing, I think right now is, uh, a kind of reversion through digital space of actually kind of more traditional humane communities, you know, within, you know, like the Dunbar number of 150 people, like people actually developing pretty close human relationships, but within these kind of carved out digital spaces. I just wonder if you happen to have any, any uh, kind of gloss on that or, or way of thinking about that. Brian, you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm skeptical of using the word community, okay. group of people communicating through digital channels that aren't face to face, having some kind of presence with embodied presence in front of other people. So I'm skeptical of that word. 
uh, being used in the context of digital connectivity. Um, however, I do agree with your point that these digi- the, these social media giants are absolutely not in any way, shape, or form community, and they are in the process of fragmenting, and people are looking for new places where they can find people of like minds to connect and be a more intimate level than Facebook. However, that I don't think is any substitute for an actual community. That's that's how I would answer that question. Yeah, nothing could be more ephemeral than than a flash mob, right? I mean, that's got to be the most ephemeral social formation ever, where you signal that everyone's going to be at a certain place and do something like raise their hand or whatever, and then they all disappear. And that's the smallest, most ephemeral possible human community, and it's very unstable. Very liquefied, very very much liquefied, uh, to use Zygmunt Bauman's term. And I'm so I'm also I share with Brian the skepticism about um, the creation of stable communities. It does seem like uh, we're seeing a fragmentation and atomization of different communities that are at war with each other. Social, social justice warriors, uh, the alt right, um, you know, the identitarians uh, in Eastern Europe also don't seem to me to be particularly stable either. They're kind of like flash mobs. They get in, light a fire, signal it on the internet, and then leave. Um, so that's the kind of phenomenon I think that's and, new here that we're seeing. Yeah. And um, in in Byung Chul Han's uh, one of his books, In the Swarm, he differentiates between the the crowd and the swarm. And the crowd is a group of human bodies coming together. You know, it could be a union protest, or it could be it doesn't even have to be a protest. It's just some kind of collective presence. And this has an interiority as a soul, whereas the digital swarm is a collection of individuals that have absolutely there's there's no um, there's no collective soul to that. So any digital community is ultimately mediated by a flows of technology and b not necessarily but usually flows of capital. In a community on Facebook, for instance, I mean Facebook is ruthlessly aggregating all of the users data to sell to advertisers i mean there is i mean the fact that facebook i mean this is ideological propaganda at its most intense the fact that facebook can call itself community or or, or, or a place where friendship can be made this is a, an outrageous statement if you really think about it i mean there is nothing about the historical friendship or the historical idea of community that has absolutely anything in common with the business logic of Facebook, zero. And I would extend that to digital communities as well. I mean, they may not be quite as ruthless as Facebook. They, they, and I absolutely acknowledge that. And it's certainly better than some of these large social media, media corporations. However, I, I do think it is problematic ultimately to refer to um, these these uh, new collectives, these new digital collectives as being communal in any, in, in any real sense of the word community. That that being said, you know, this is what people have to do today because of the the because of what these technologies have in society. People have no choice. So I mean, I don't fault any for for doing that. I mean, this is the choice that has been given to us by the by the. Um, by the system, by the technological system that, that is in place right now. However, I, I think it should be said, this is far from an actual community. It's it's very interesting. Um, just from my experience living in Iquitos, which is very close to the jungle, very close to, you know, 
old community, old jungle pueblos. And when you see a real community in action, I mean, I grew up in a suburb of Boston. And yeah, it was, a you know, we'd play Little League and play youth sports and, you know, you knew everybody and it was fine. But to come to the jungle and see what a real community looks like, it's actually incredibly eye-opening. I mean, it, it, it was... It it was um it's a breath of fresh air to be around. You almost can't even believe places like that exist anymore. Um, on I always I, I was telling a friend of mine that on the street that I live in in Iquitos, and and I live in downtown Iquitos, which is which is a fairly big city. But I walk out of my apartment and there's a guy there every day who sells fruit from like a fruit stand, and I'm just trying to think like is this even like it's almost like a miracle that a person like that can even exist in the year 2019. Um, so, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of off track here, but I also wanted to want one more thing about the axial age, you know, another interesting thing about Aikidos right now is that it's kind of the, uh, epicenter of the global ayahuasca market. There's probably, I don't even know how many centers are in the, um, in the area of Aikidos right now, but you have hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of people coming down to Aikidos every day to participate in ceremony, to, to drink various different plant medicines. And I, and I absolutely see on the ground level, some adelage-ish energy gestating right now that there is absolute, and people who are coming down are from all walks of life. They're you know, uh, Valley programmers, they're working in London, just whatever. They're just everyday people. But there is absolutely a need, a, a, an unbelievable, um, urge desire for some kind of i don't know if i say an axiolage but but some kind of deeper meaning than what's happening in this world today that is being absolutely drained from any type of symbolic resonance by the hyper modern reign which is like i say this this integration of capital with computational logic um it's it's okay. flattening out everything it's it, it's it's making everything into a system of pure equivalence of their equivalence and exchange. And what is being lost in that is meaning. And what is coming forth is monetization, quantification. And as um, the Harvard scholar Shishan Zuboff's research, who's an incredibly important book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, surveillance, that is, an ab- that is something that is absolutely coming to the front of hypermodernity, surveillance. Um, I think in a way that could even be, if we think in terms of the uh, genealogy from discipline to control, from Foucault's disciplinary age to Deleuze's control age, I think coming into a new epoch of surveillance, you know, and that absolutely sinks into the greater structure of, of hypermodernity. Okay. Okay. I definitely feel a lot of that. Now we have a uh, good question from Lou in the chat and this is a super chat for 10 bucks canadian thank you mr lou lou wants to ask this he says hey guys lou here congrats on the book do you think that digital historical records will endure like analog records and it carries on to to say like for instance will this podcast be available in a thousand years like a platonic dialogue no no absolutely not um that's another thing about the ephemerality of this civilization is that it's based all on digitization. And so the media, if you look at the history of media, it's all very concrete. It starts with clay. You know, you know the Babylonians are writing on clay tablets. Uh, and then along comes the Egyptian papyrus. Um, and then along comes the Romans invent the book. It's what was originally called a codex. 
uh, with pages that you flip. And you can take those things, whether you're talking about the, the tablets or whether you're talking about these codices now, and store them uh, in the archives at Alexandria, for instance, or at Pergamum. Uh, those two cities were at odds with each other over trying to hoard all the knowledge. And so with Alexandria, we had this huge system of the biggest library of the ancient world, um, but it was burned down repeatedly. Uh, the Arabs later went in and attacked it. Uh, the Christians at first attacked it. Um, but what we have, uh, the knowledge that we have of Roman writers and of Greek writers, of classical writers, all comes out of those libraries, those two libraries right there, because it's concrete. So it can survive cultural disintegrations. We've lost a lot. There's been book burnings, uh, especially in China, with all the elimination of the books there. But because of the concreteness of the media, it's, it's there in a concrete way. This isn't the case in the digital world where, for instance, um, on Wikipedia, you have this silly idea that, um, let's say I want to look up an article on Napoleon, see who Napoleon was. Um, but something now, another guy can come along and anathematize my statement get rid of it. And so now what was true about Napoleon yesterday is no longer true about him today. That's that, that's not a, a solid knowledge database in any way, shape, or form. What, what Wikipedia is not a system of knowledge. It's a system of rumors about knowledge. These are what people currently know from elsewhere about these subjects. And so it's totally unstable. And there's that plus the fact that simply, uh, you know, all you have to do is unplug the civilization, turn the lights out, and all this is gone. All this is gone, um, and there, there's no record of it. If you can't get the electrical systems back up and running, uh, no, nobody's going to have access to any of this. Um, so that's why I feel that concrete media, like the book, um, are very important and should remain. They might be viewed as vestigial or as relics from another age, but those are the ones that are more likely to survive into the future and people rediscover them uh, than, than all this digital stuff. Okay, good answer. Uh, Brian, did you have an answer or any thoughts on that question? No, no, ne not necessary if you don't. No, I don't. It's interesting that if the clock went down, everybody's pictured. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that uh, we've, we've, been, um, um, we've been persuaded to think this technology is so solid and, and eternal, and it's really not. I mean, I think an old photo album might, might be it. I think people are waking up to the fact that this technology might not be as stable as we've been led to believe, just, just to uh, further John's point. So I, I personally, you know, we're talking on digital technology right now. So I mean, yes, it's fine. There's, there's something about it that's, that's interesting and useful. I think ultimately um, there has to be some kind of, uh, we have to preserve analog technology in some way, shape, or form. We have to. I mean, we can't just merge with the cloud. We can't I, just I, right. I recently, I, I recently had a personal experience of a, of a miniature dark age um, in the sense that I had all these albums on Google Play that I had recorded on Google Play, which I figured since it's Google, it's going to be there. You know, this is going to be a stable thing here. So I can upload album after album, discussion after discussion about Heidegger, Deleuze, and Batari. I went through all the great German philosophers, Kant, Fichte, Schelling, Hegel. All that stuff was on there. And then all of a sudden I get a notification from Google recently that we're shutting down Google play. Um, and I was like, well, how do I get access to those files then? And they're like too bad. So sad. That was their initial attitude, but I think they must've gotten a lot of complaints because they changed it and made it possible to go back in 
and download your stuff. So I'd, I had to go through a process, a very tedious process of going back in and downloading all my stuff. But that's an experience of what I'm talking about. My whole knowledge database could have just been blinked from existence right there with that little mm-hmm. mini event. So that's the kind of situation that we're, that we're in here. Right. I, I think that in the early era of all of this, all of these companies were very liberal and come store your data here, come, come post your pictures here. And it was all um, fine and well. And, every, you know, kind of everything goes basically. And as we've seen over the past couple of years, that is not really the case anymore. And, and John just gave a concrete example of that. They can just turn it off. And, you know, we're starting to see some more policing of speech. We're starting to see that um, this stuff that was free, so to speak, really isn't. And it comes with a, 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 a whole set of baggage that people didn't really sign up for when they initially did. So the digital um, utopia that I think reached the high point in 2011 with the Arab Spring and, and Occupy Wall Street and the Iranian elections, I don't think it's working anymore. I, I think people are, whether they, they want to admit it or not, there is a crisis in terms of trusting this logic, trusting these specific companies, and most importantly, trusting the direction that this, like the, uh, the train is headed, so to speak. Um, one of the things that we talked about in the book that you probably read, you know, um, was Elon Musk give an example. And, and this is pretty common um, across the, the um, leadership thought of, Silicon, of, of a place like Silicon Valley. But he gave an interview earlier this year where he basically said that the historical trajectory of the human race is to merge our neurological topography with the cloud. I mean, that to me is horrifying. <laughs> I mean, horrifying. And it's hard. And I'll tell you why it's horrifying. I mean, I guess hypothetically, I'm open to, you know, technologically developing myself, possibly. I mean, I'm, this is not something that I would just say yes to, but it's something that I'm hypothetically open to. I'm not open to merging my neuro- neuronal composition with a transnational corporation that's going to steal my neural data for profit. <laughs> that's but I'm not, that's what I'm not open to. And, but what's interesting about Musk is, is how he speaks of it in such ideological terms. I mean, ideology, the great definition of ideology, and this is where, where Zizek has done so much to inform all of us, you know, any symbolic order is constituted by a series of gaps and openings. In other words, things don't add up. Things don't make sense naturally. And ideology is a system that fills in the gaps. It makes sense of an, of an inherently unsensible world. And this logic that human beings are going to eventually merge with computers, with networks, with the cloud, I mean, this is ideology at its purest. This is pure ideology. Because the fact of the matter is the train is on fire. The train is, I mean, the car is crashing into the wall and, they're t- and we're, giving a, we're giving a message that once we merge with what, what I found so interesting about that interview was that in one sense, Musk, said, Musk says, if we don't merge with this technology, there will be essentially a, a collective genocide of, of the human race because this technology is so powerful. It won't have any use for us. But then on the other hand, it's like you have to merge with it. So it's like, so to translate that in, in simple terms, you have to merge with the thing that's going to kill you or else. 
So I, I find this to be unbelievable that the people who are interviewing just, hey, okay. Like there was no real question of this direction that the, the, the direction that technology is taken and it's absolutely aligned with the reproduction of capital that, that we are not questioning this in a radical way. And, and to be honest with you, I think we're starting to do that. I think we're starting to do that, but it's just, you know, in 2010, 2011, when we reached this high point of, of, of digital utopianism, people would say, hey, digital technology is going to change the world. It's going to make the world a better place. It's going to make it more egalitarian, so on and so forth. And people would say, yeah, absolutely. You say that today, no one believes it anymore. Hmm. They might shake their head and say, yeah, 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 sure. But no one really believes it anymore because it's just not the case. Well, you know, I think where I disagree with that is, and this is why people call me, you know, what you would call an accelerationist, is that while I sympathize with a lot of that, it seems to me that even if one were to agree with all of your sentiments and one wanted to kind of cultivate a future other than just kind of merging with the machines as as you describe it, the problem is that all of the potential or all of the opportunities for any type of resistance to that seem to be themselves predicated on precisely this kind of acceleration of the mega machine. And, and I think like, look at us as an example, right? I mean, you guys wrote an awesome book, which is totally self-published. You're kind of leveraging the cutting edge of contemporary publishing technology, just uploading to amazon.com, for instance. Uh, we're using Google and, and, and YouTube to have this radically decentralized and autonomous conversation where we're talking about exactly what we want and only what we want. We're, we're totally free. We're building a kind of authentic community of some kind, however mediated and that might be in with whatever caveats that might require. So what I'm getting at is like, I have a lot of sympathy. I have a lot of the same sympathies as you do. And in trying to kind of resist the alienating coldness of kind of hyper-technologized neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it in, 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 in trying to create something better or different look at what we're doing we're essentially um we're at the very cutting edge of technological possibility we are the ones who are accelerating our kind of increasing uh imbrication if you will with with the the technological mega machine and so that's why i think i'm much more of a determinist on this point but i'm also much more optimistic about it i actually think that this accelerating technological advancements that we're that that on the one hand we're all kind of horrified by uh, the more creatively we're able to uh, repurpose it, like the better it is essentially for us. Like we're able to do amazingly liberating, create creative and cool things. As long as we acknowledge that we're essentially, we are the ones that, who are accelerating the mega machine. Yeah. But I don't think we really are. I mean, I, I'm somewhat sympathetic. With, I, I am somewhat sympathetic with, with your point and accelerationism in general, but first of all, I don't think we're really the ones accelerating the machine. First and foremost, I think we might have the illusion that we are. Um, but no, I mean, I'm I, and I'm also well aware that that we are all part of a process that's happening. So I think that you know, I go with the philosophy of go with the flow, man. You know, kind of take take each day as it comes. Let's go with the flow and see what happens. So I mean, what I'm pointing out simply is that, given 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 the example the example of Elon Musk, is that there is something about that logic that's 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 scary. That's that's something that that should be questioned, and that is part and parcel of what we are terming the hypermodern era. That there's a trajectory here of linking 
human biology, human genetics, human neurology with corporate technology. And that's something that we should be aware of and, 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 and we should be open about. John, go ahead. Yeah, we always have this um, unquestioning attitude about technological development in the West, especially. The West came out of a tradition, uh, which I call the central archetype, was the wonder child, uh, which came, the Greeks invented. Achilles was the first example. Um, the fight between Achilles and Agamemnon uh, isn't over a girl. The fight is between the new generation. Achilles is the youngest warrior there. Um, Agamemnon is this grizzled old warrior. And he Homer shows him repeatedly again and again, getting the troops in trouble, making one bad decision after the next. And Achilles is clearly the one who should be the leader. Um, so you can already see the shift there from the elders, um, which the East has, has continued. Uh, the whole tradition of respect, of filial piety and respect for the elders and uh, the wonder child in the West with this faith that technological development is something that is absolute. And Neil Postman used to, used to point that out. He used to say, every time a new technological development comes into being, people get excited about it and they say, what new world will this make for us? But the one question they never ask is, what way of life will this new technology undo for us? And do are we are we good with that? Uh, for example, singing in pubs went out with the television. You put a television in a pub, nobody's singing in a pub anymore. So you have a concrete example of a new technology disintegrating a military. Hey, community. John, 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 forget yeah. about singing. No one's even talking to each other in pubs anymore. Forget about singing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And that's the problem. People just stare at the, the phone. You know, forget about singing. Shift yeah. even to that, the creation of your own private bubble. Uh, you become a microsphere that has no relation to the macrosphere cultural uh, world around you. These technologies unplug individuals, actually. And we get the illusion that they're uniting people, but they're really not. They're putting them into a private space. Uh, the individual who's walking down the street uh, looking at his or her phone has no relationship to the community that is around that person. None no. whatsoever. It's so a private and world interior. Yeah, go ahead. Hmm. No, two things just no. real. Oh, go on. Oh. Sorry. That's okay. No, uh, just to just further John's point about um, the, the the topic of Dialogue 4 in the book is we we use the title of uh, Chapter 4 from a title of um, Byung Chul Han's book, The Expulsion of the Other. And that's another feature of, of hypermodernity is this disappearance of the other. And I, for one, believe subjectivity, our, our, our basic sense of self is constituted by a relationship with the other. It's formed through a dialectical exchange with the other. And what technology is doing, and this rampant neoliberal consumerism, or whatever you want to call it, it, it is putting us all into shells where the other is being foreclosed. And, you know, even in this situation, I mean, you got, I mean, Right now, we, we can talk about the liberatory effects of this conversation. And I absolutely agree. There is something liberatory about this conversation. I'm in Peru. John's in Santa Fe. I don't know where you are, Justin. We're, I'm we're, in Albuquerque, actually. You're in Albuquerque. Okay. So, I mean, there is something about that that's fundamentally wonderful. But at the same time, there is like we are talking to each other through a medium that is is displacing otherness. And so I just wanted to further John's point that there is a crisis. I mean, part of the mental health crisis in, in America right now, it's not simply neurobiological. It's, it's not simply a question of um, transmitters flowing through synaptic gaps. 
this is a crisis of the other. This is a crisis of community. This is a crisis of not being our flesh, not being in contact with other people. And um, yeah, so I mean, right. you know, a crisis of otherness is, is another constituent feature of hypermodernity. Right. Okay. So real quick, just two things. So the one is that, uh, John, we're getting some crazy ding dong sounds from your computer. FYI. I don't know if you can uh, oh, yeah. turn those off, turn no. those off or whatever. No, I can't. I get invaded by these ads and they won't stop. <laughs> and it's just hypermodern, so hypermodern aggressive <laughs> and invasive. And I have no idea how to shut it off. So. All right. That's fine. It's fine. No big deal. This is uh, accelerating technological annoyance is what it is. No big deal. So the, the second thing I just wanted to kind of throw on the table is that I guess another reason why I'm more sanguine about all of this than, than you two is that I tend to think more about the ways in which technological acceleration is just utterly destroying the foundations of traditional large institutions, which many of us think of as oppressive and, uh, you know, overly controlling. Right. And so, but, you know, for instance, I think if you're, I mean, that, I mean, the most oppressive organizations in the history of, of the human race are accelerating technological organizations. So, I mean, I, I mean, if you're talking about like the Ford motor company, yes, it is being absolutely destroyed by this kind of technology. But I mean, I would much rather be an, a, a, a worker on the assembly line in Detroit in 1920 than a coder for Google in 2019. Much rather. Mm. And, and do you want to know why? Because mm. I would have health insurance. I would have insurance. I would Maybe not 1920, not 1940. I would have insurance. I would have a sense of solidarity with my workers. I would have a sense of community. Or I would have, yeah, I might not be making, uh, you know, I might not be making what, what a Google coder makes but there is um something to be said about the i i I don't think that these companies these so-called oppressive companies of of the um era of industrial capitalism you could say are nearly as oppressive as what as as what you're getting to today the oppression of these old companies were corporal they were oppression of the body today these are spiritual these are spiritually oppressive these are psychologically oppressive they are much more invasive and they are also much more invisible. The oppression of, of the past, you could see it. You could always see it. You can't see it today. I'll, this, is a very, this is a very interesting um, event that's happening in San Francisco right now, where they're trying to paint over a, a mural of George Washington. I forget the name of the painter. Um, uh, anyway, he was a Russian painter, a Russian immigrant who was a committed socialist, radically left-wing, who painted this mural of George Washington's life in the 1930s um, dur- during the Great Depression. And, and it was a painting not to glorify Washington, quite, quite the contrary. It was to bring to light the oppressive nature of, of America's colonial past. But it was there. And he put it on, the, it was on a high school wall for the past 80 years. And now they're in the process of wanting to take it down. Now, what I found so interesting about this is that San Francisco is the, is the ground zero of some of the most oppressive technologies. And these San Francisco tech liberals that want to take it down, somebody said is like, they want to take it down to, to shield these high school children from our nation's colonial past. And I said, no, it's the exact opposite. They want to take it down to, to shield children from making the connection to the oppression of the present, which is absolutely coming from these types of people in San, you know, I don't want to pigeonhole, people in San Francisco, they're, they're probably wonderful people. But the idea is the true oppression of contemporary society 
is being emanated from these tech corporations. These high school kids, I mean, they, they are being psychologically oppressed, spiritually alienated by these companies, not by George Washington, not by George Washington. So the problem with that is that why they want to block this off, again, it's, it's not to protect these young children from whatever George Washington did. It's to prevent these children from making a link to the oppression that's happening today. Oppression doesn't look the same in every era. The, mm. the oppression of a mining company or, a, or one of these brutal corporations of industrial capitalism is, operates in a completely different way from you know, Google or Amazon or you know, whatever, one, one of these. So things, things happen in different ways. So sorry to interrupt you. Continue. No, no, that, that's a great little rant for sure. I don't know, John, if you want to add anything to this. I, I, these debates are really interesting and fun uh, by all means, but I want to keep the focus on your book. So I wonder if, would you like to drill down a little bit more into the book? Does that sound like a good move? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Maybe what should we talk about. Yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about the structure of the book because it's interesting that a lot of it is laid out in in dialogue form. Could you explain what you what you what you meant by dialogue and 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 why you pursue that? Well, technique? the dialogue was invented by Plato, so we're put, you know we're trying to plug into a tradition here that goes way way back where you get individuals together uh, debating ideas. Uh, and in this book, it was only Brian and I and our friend Michael Aaron Caymans who wrote the preface. Did a great job on the preface. Um, so that was the thing to give this freshness of an immediacy of a discussion that's happening now about a crisis that we're in. It gives, I think, it gives it an immediacy uh, that you wouldn't find in like a, a scholarly treatise, which is always kind of after the fact and quite it's, it's quietened uh, down. Uh, but we wanted it to have this emergency status. You know, the artist uh, Joseph Boyce, uh, one of his last actions was to uh, put a coyote inside of an ambulance in New York and drove the ambulance to the building, brought the coyote up uh, in order to retrieve this idea of how men used to communicate with animals. But the ambulance symbolized the fact that it was an emergency. He was trying to signify this is an emergency situation. We've lost the ability on this planet to communicate with with other species, um, like shamans, for, for instance, used to do. So that's what I'd say about that. As far as the dialogue format goes, that's what we were thinking anyway. And it isn't all just dialogue. There's writing in there as well. The, I wrote most of the introduction. Brian wrote most of the epilogue. Uh, and then Michael Kamen's wrote the preface. So there's actually a, a variety of literary species uh, in the book. Although you're right, right it is mostly dialogue. Right. And so how did you actually produce it? Uh, did you just take turns taking stabs at it? Did you plan things out in advance together? Over Skype. Um, yeah. yeah, that's it. We just had five conversations on five subsequent weekends. Uh, you know, forty-five minutes each. Um, get in, have have the debate, get out. Um, and it was a format that was fun. It was relatively easy to do. Um, we edited the hell out of it, so it's not just dialogue in the sense of a, of a recording of people like this would be a, a recording of us rambling uh, where sometimes, you know, we make mistakes or we backtrack. Or, and so we, we ironed it out, edited it. Um, so yeah, there's quite a, quite a number of layers of, of literacy going on there. So you recorded conversations and then what did you like tr- have the audio transcribed and work from that? Yeah. We had the audio transcribed uh, and then they were sent to me uh, because I make my primary living as an editor and proofreader for both zero books and semiotext. 
um, so I can do all the editing. So I went through and edited, and then we traded him back, and then he went through and edited, uh, and we went back and forth uh, making changes and doing it that way, just sending it back and forth until we got a text that we were happy with. Cool. That's interesting. So this is actually a perfect segue into a question that came up a few times earlier in the chat. Uh, several people asking about uh, William Burroughs, both in the connection to ayahuasca in South America, but also now it's kind of interesting to think about uh, some some similarities in technique, perhaps. So I, I, I could ask this in a few different ways, but Perhaps the best question is just to ask, are either of you influenced by William Burroughs? Absolutely. We both are. We adore him. Um, he's my favorite of the beats. I've read all of his books, everything he wrote, uh, read Ted Morgan's literary outlaw biography, um, studied the whole thing in Tangier with another genius there, Paul Bowles, uh, who is an underrated genius, who is part of the sort of an eccentric beat that most people don't know about. But if you sit down and read Paul Bowles, the guy was an absolute literary master. Um, how do you spell that last name? B-O-W-L-E-S. Okay. Paul Bowles. Yeah, I never uh, heard. Yeah, he was uh, sort of, he was a bit older than Burroughs. And I think Burroughs arrived in Tangier and kind of wanted to be him. Uh, so there was a little bit of rivalry there. But no, Burroughs, I think, is, is was an absolute genius. And I love his whole worldview where he, um, you know, there's a certain similarity to, to what he did to the novel to what Mark Rothko did to the iconotypes in painting. Rothko went in with the modernist iconotypes and just simply liquefied them, melted them down into these semiotic vacancies. Burroughs did something similar. If you read his early books like Junkie and Queer, um, they're pretty traditional narrative novels. Uh, they tell traditional stories. But by the time he starts experimenting with the stuff that's in Inner Zone, uh, which is a collection of, of a bunch of stuff, and then moves on to Naked Lunch, and then the masterpiece for me is the, the trilogy of the soft machine, the ticket that exploded, uh, and the Nova Express of simply liquefying all the structures and iconotypes of the novel. Narrative, continuity of character, plot. Um, who says we have to have a plot? We, you know. Um, so I think of Burroughs as an equivalent to Mark Rothko and doing something very similar at about the same time. Um, so... Brian, go ahead. I, I know you like Burroughs. Uh, did actually, you catch the question? I think you dropped off. No, I my my Wi-Fi cut off for about two minutes, so I'm back now. So um, oh, sure. So the question was just a few people asked this ac actually about um, is there a connection between your work and the work of William Burroughs? Specifically, someone brought it up in the context of you by mentioning the the ayahuasca and South America pilgrimage. Well, you know, I'm I'm just working. It's interesting what John was saying about Burroughs and and the cut up style of uh, his his literary expression. I'm just finishing up my first novel. And it's in many ways talking about how, how we mentioned earlier is like part of hypermodernity, at least what me and John are doing is trying to reestablish new narratives, new stories. And I think my novel is a very traditional story. It's, it's not written with any um, crazy literary techniques. It's, it's a story, you know? So, I mean, Burroughs was interested in ayahuasca. He, his, his famous Yeage letters. Um, but um no, I mean I'm 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 definitely interested in Burroughs in the Beats as a historical as as an artistic historical movement. I think they're amazing, um, but but no, not really. No, no direct influence. Other there. than the fact that both of us have, other than the fact that both of us have have drank ayahuasca. No. Yeah. Okay. Do you do you want to tell us a little bit about that very briefly? I don't want to get on too much of a tangent, but uh, yeah, tell us about ayahuasca in South America. How how was it? Uh, was it influ Was it like 
Oh, someone asked. Someone actually did ask this. This is why I'm I'm bringing it back up. Someone asked, um, Brian, does did you does your experience with ayahuasca affect your views on hypermodernity? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Good you know, question. one of the what, that's a great question. Um, it's a fantastic question. Um, you know, I've I don't even know how many times I drank ayahuasca. Well over a hundred. Um, and I wrote a book actually called the ayahuasca dialogues. It's my most recent book that John actually edited. And I co-wrote it with, um, one of, if one of definitely the most respected shamans in the Amazon jungle, a man named Ricardo Amaringo, who is, um, is a truly an amazing man. One of the most talented men I've ever ever met in my life. Um, but we wrote this book together about ayahuasca and and it's kind of a hyper-modern take on, on ayahuasca. And, and it's actually written in a similar style that John and I did the this hypermodern trilogy in the sense that I wrote an introduction and, and a fairly lengthy introduction and an epilogue. And the book itself is a dialogue between me and Amaringo. But no, I mean, I think I think the resurgence of psychedelic plant medicine and LSD a little bit that's happening right now in the second decade of the 20th century is absolutely response to the psychic collapse, the emotional destitution, the spiritual degeneration that has come forth with hypermodernity. The, 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 the psychedelic movement of the 1960s was, you know, it was associated with the student protests. It was associated with the anti-war movement. It was associated with, but really, at least the way I read it, this was a time when the disciplinary model was collapsing. This was a time when the model of industrial capitalism was on its last legs. And what happened with psychedelic in, in the 60s was, was opening up psychic space for some kind of new model. And unfortunately, that new model gestated into neoliberalism. I mean, there is, in, there is such a link between the psychedelic culture in California and the mobilization of the microelectronic technologies of Silicon Valley in the 1980s. I mean, all these people were involved with psychedelia. So there, there is a direct link between hypermodernity and psychedelia in the sense that the technologies that, like the main technologies and the main I- ideology of networks, these were majorly influenced by what happened with psychedelia in the 60s. And I think what's happening now at least what I hope is happening now is there's some kind of re- reflection on that. And this new, this new psychedelic renaissance that's happening right now can take things in a more healthy direction. Um, but no, I mean, living, I mean, you know, I, like I said, ayahuasca, I mean, um, Aikidos is, is absolutely the ground zero of the global ayahuasca market. And so, I mean, I see it every day and there are a lot of people coming down there. I mean, listen, people are, are hurting right now. People are hurting and not just people who have been traumatized in some kind of horrific family or, or event that happened in their life, just day-to-day living is painful for a lot of people. So, I mean, I, I see so many people coming down there right now who are, who are suffering deeply and are drinking ayahuasca to heal and coming to the Amazon to heal. And people are doing that. So, I mean, I, I am, you know, there's a whole range of plant medicines in, in, in the Amazon, and I'm, and I'm very, very supportive of, of all of them. Uh, ayahuasca is definitely the most psychologically intense, without question. So my only, um, if, if people are listening and they're interested in it, my only advice would be do it with a, 
a very competent person and also take some precautions before you do it, like having a proper diet and, you know, knowing what, what you're getting yourself into because it's, it's very powerful. And the other thing I would say is if you can come to the jungle to drink it, I would definitely do it because drinking ayahuasca in New York or London or Paris or whatever, it's, it's definitely not the same as doing it down in This point about knowing what you're getting yourself into is relevant to an experience I had recently where I did psilocybin for the first time. Uh, And this was uh, like two months ago. And I had no idea what I was getting into there. And the guy said, you know, I said, you know, how much should I take? And he's like, well, five grams would be the absolute limit. You don't want to probably don't even want to go near five grams. And I said, you know what, Ted, just give me the whole five grams. I want the I want the whole experience. Did you? (laughs) <laughs> and let me tell you, uh, it was one of the worst events of my life. I had oh, such really? a bad trip. Oh, it was awful. Um, I became paranoid. And uh, I, you know, these things are psychomimetic sometimes. They can mimic uh, states of mental illness. Like I could look out at the world and see how a paranoid person sees the world. Wow. That's how it felt for a while, for about an hour, hour and a half, something like that. It would not end. And, you know, I had a girlfriend who killed herself recently. And part of the reason for me doing that was to hope that that experience would help heal, which it did. But the grief was so intense, so awful. Everybody was worried about me. I was the only one having a bad trip. And they were all like, what can we do to help this guy? But I came out of it after a couple of hours and actually felt pretty good. I I felt like some healing had taken place. Um, So it turned out to be a, a good experience. But it was intense. And I had no idea what I was getting into. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, first of all, John, I'm really sorry to hear about your loss. I'm, my my sincere well, condolences. Yeah, I'm really sorry about that. It's thank terrible. Um, that is a crazy story also. Uh, yeah, I prefer uh, microdosing psychedelics. I think that's amazing, which is basically well, just what it sounds like taking extremely sure. small doses where you get some, you get, a, you get a bunch of kind of psychological effects, but they're kind of beneath what you can perceive really. So um yeah, yeah, that that's that's my that's my favorite thing to do personally. Yeah, no, I mean, I I I've I've heard a lot of people are doing that right now to help them with work and to help them, and, and I think that's fine. You know, if if, if, yeah. if if that's working for people, that's great. So, okay, I I I want to now move us into a segment. If you guys still have energy, that is, I know sure. it's been some time. I want to move us into a, a a new segment for the show, which is where I want to ask you a few questions, which are drawn from a unique source, but which I think is a uniquely valuable source um you guys may or may not be familiar with this but you don't you don't need to be uh benjamin franklin had a list of questions that he asked in his uh social meetup group back in the day and i think there's there's some really interesting edifying kind of old-fashioned questions which i think uh are fun for us to use as pretext for for talking about some things are you game for this segment sure that's great. Cool. It'll also give. We're not. We're not completely leaving the book behind because, as you'll see, it'll give you some opportunity to, if you want to, perhaps explore other themes in the book that we haven't gotten to yet. So, for instance, sure, sure. this first question. For instance, not he has a list in order. I'm going in a kind of order that I think suits the the vibe of the conversation. So, our first question, not his. This is actually his twenty third question. Um, is there any difficulty in matters of opinion of justice and injustice? which you would gladly have discussed at this time. So any, anything else uh, in terms of current affairs, politics, uh, or, or opinions, whatever they might be that we haven't hit on, which you would like to address at this time? 
Well, it's a little vague, that question. I mean, <laughs> that really leaves the door open. To just well, that's, that's the fun of it. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Brian. The answer any... could be no. It's fine. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I no, not particularly. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, no. <laughs> All right. I'm definitely interested in global politics, and I'm definitely interested in um, – in what's happening in the world. So there's a lot of things that I could comment on, but there's nothing particularly right now that strikes me as me wanting to, to speak about it. But um, no, that's no, good. no problem. That's that question I think is nice because it just kind of gives you an open-ended opportunity to get on out, 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 you know, on the table, anything that perhaps you wanted to, that I didn't necessarily bring up. So that's fine. That's perfectly fine. Here's another one, which uh, works surprisingly well in the digital age, given that we have a active, uh, live chat going on from people sure. watching watching the show. Um, have you any weighty affair in hand in which you think the advice of the current group may be of service? <laughs> John? <laughs> what a vague question too. I mean, well, you can, I mean, you have, you have fans and audience members watching and listening right now. Maybe you want to solicit their opinion or advice or just some basic feedback from them or from me. Um, up to you. Interpret it how you how you please. <laughs> you gotta love Benjamin Franklin, man. You know he's he, he <laughs> really nerves, the guy. You know what's yeah. funny? I'm actually at this very moment reading um, uh, Paul Johnson's History of, of of the American People. It's like a 1100 page book, and I'm just at the part. I'm about 150 pages in, and I'm just getting to the Benjamin Franklin part. So it's very interesting that you just uh, brought his name up right now. It's wonderful. <laughs> Nice, but he's nice. he's a I mean he's associated with Philadelphia, but we should we, we should mention as as a Boston man myself, he's originally from Boston. He was born in Milk Street in Boston. All oh, right, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so maybe you guys don't have anything on the tip of your tongue that you want to ask uh, for advice about from me or the audience. That's fine. Well, what what? Hey, you know what? What do you think would be? I mean, we me me and John really want this book to sell. And we really, you know, we, we want to make this hypermodern trilogy. And so what, what would your, you and your audience, what kind of advice would they have for us to get this book out there, to, 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 to help people to know about it, to read it, to disseminate it, to kind of get the message out there that this, that, that this book is important, it's out, and it's, it's part one of a, of a three-part series. That's an, excellent, that's an excellent response to the question, I think. So folks yeah. listening and watching, uh, you, heard, you heard it here. Uh, they, uh, Brian would like to know your input on do you have any advice for how they can get the word about their book out there to people like you who might be interested in reading it. So uh, I'll be checking the chat. If you have any suggestions or advice, uh, they would appreciate that. And I'm sure you know the hive mind can come up with something. Thank you, Justin. Excellent, excellent response. So I'll, I'll monitor and I'll let you know what comes in. Folks listening and watching, you can uh, think about this and then and then feed in. So we'll just do a couple a couple more. Um, so uh, here's a good one. Hath anybody attacked your reputation lately? And what can the current group organized today uh, do towards securing your your reputation? Oh, my reputation's been attacked many times. <laughs> Any, anything anything recent that you want to uh, share share with us? No, because uh, I'm not particularly fond of you know. I, I've gone on Twitter and done rants before, and Facebook, um, and so people know I'm you know I'm a cantankerous guy. I'm not 
you know, so I'd rather not go into any specific on the rants. So there's yeah. no particular aspect of your personality or character that has been attacked, which you would not, which you might like to use now as an opportunity to redress. I attacked is the wrong word. I, I didn't hear anybody attack me. Mostly they were just politely silent. They're like, yeah, Ebert's a maniac. So, <laughs> okay. so but okay. no, well, if, if anything comes to you, uh, John, that you would like uh, the help of my live stream to redress, uh, let me know. <laughs> All right. All right. Brian, what about you? Has anyone attacked your reputation lately? Not, not, no, definitely in my life, but, but, but not lately. And you know, it's, it's interesting having been uh, living down in South America and uh, for the past couple of years now, I kind of have a a whole new philosophy and how I want to live my life. And, and, you know, like being a, a famous writer is something that was important to me at one time. Now it's not at all. I, I enjoy writing. I'm going to keep writing and I just live a simple life. And, you know, and, and, and so my, my reputation isn't really important to me in that's like in the sense that I want to optimize my LinkedIn profile, you know, or I I want to optimize my whatever. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's living day to day in my life, in my body, in the people that I know in my vicinity. And then what happens happens, you know? So I'm, I am, I've always been a person my whole life. Because, you know, I, I was an athlete when I was younger and I was and I was fairly good. So I was always someone in the public eye. I was always very concerned with how people thought of me. And so I, I'm so over that now. And I have to tell you, it's, it's a very liberating feeling. Hell yeah. it, it really is. Nice. So um, but no, to answer your question, I haven't been. And, and if I was, I would absolutely ask you if, you ha- if, if, if you'd have any advice. But 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 to be honest with you, no, I think things are good, man. Good, good. So a few answers to your to your question have poured in, and I, I want to go over them with you. So uh, Brian had asked Brian had asked if anyone has any advice for how they can get the word out about their book, and um, a few interesting responses. One is uh, actually this person was asking about this earlier before um, having a Kindle version of the book. Is there going to be one or where? Yes, yes. With within thirty days is going to be a Kindle version. Nice. Excellent. So that I think would be good. People seem to be interested in that. So yes, there will be a Kindle version. Good. And um, uh, here's a good one. Um, Trupal says that you you should make memes of uh, John resembling Oswald Spengler. (laughs) (laughs) People have mentioned that before that I vaguely resemble him. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you should have... you should you should find someone on the internet to uh, make you a bunch of memes to that effect. That would be uh, great. I'd roll with it. Yeah. That well, is that, some... you know that that uh, picture John has in his face. Are, are you on Facebook, Justin, or no? Yeah, I am. Are you friends with John? Because that picture he has on his on his Facebook uh, profile is wonderful. With him with the with the hands moving and everything, it's great. Nice, nice. Okay, so by, yeah, by an artist named Ben Nader, by the way. So I'll put in a, a name drop for yeah, him. That's great. Cool, cool. Um, that this kind of responds to something else someone answered with, which is someone said viral marketing, uh, which is a good suggestion. Except the the million dollar question is how to do that. And I think the uh, suggestion to make memes of John looking like Oswald Spengler is a pretty damn good one. So that could get you some traction. I love sure. it. I love it. Um, Spengler is my all time favorite thinker. So if anyone if anyone listening to this or watching this wants to uh, get creative and make some memes of John looking like Oswald Spengler, I will totally retweet the shit out of them, and I'm sure John will too. So, <laughs> so uh, awesome. hit, us, do hit us up if you do. Yeah. Um, so, all right, let's see what else. Um, all right, so that that's it for now. If you have if anyone else has any other advice, uh, chip it in. Um, here's just maybe one more question. We are coming up. We're, we've now exceeded an hour and a half. I know. So I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, overtax you guys. 
But okay. uh, here's a good here's a good question from Ben Franklin's list, which I think uh, is also apropos for people like us right now. Um, where is it? Oh, I lost it. Um, ah, here it is. Do you know of any deserving young beginner lately set up whom it lies in the power of this group assembled here to in any way encourage? Any young writers, John, that you're, you're in touch with? Michael Aaron Kamins. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's definitely he's an extraordinarily talented uh, poet who lives in Los Angeles, uh, who's written one book so far called Absences. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and the new book is called Clouds, which which is even better. Um, it's but that's not out yet, though. It's not out yet, no, but it will be this, this summer. Um, so that's what he's working on now. And uh, that book is so good that I would compare it to uh, the howl of uh, this generation. I think it's as good, as extraordinary, as amazing as the uh, the effect that Howl had when uh, Ginsburg read it in San Francisco and everyone was blown away by it. So what was the title? Clouds. Clouds. And what's, what's, so what's his story a little bit more generally? What's it, what's, give us a brief spiel about uh, the author. Uh, Michael is a uh, psychotherapist. Um, he graduated from Pacifica. Um, his background tends to come out of a Jungian world. Um, and he knows the hell out of the entire history of psychology. He, he's read everyone. He knows everyone. And that's his daily practice and his job. And that's what he does. And uh, so he's, and he also works on the poetry. So that's kind of where he's at. But he's going to be big. Trust me. He's, he's, he's going to emerge. And also the art of Mary Church, I think. Uh, the, my girlfriend who committed suicide. I think uh, it's being in, it's in the process right now of being discovered. And I think she's going to be very famous. Um, and I think it's, you know, she's like the Van Gogh of hypermodernity. You know, she shot herself like Van Gogh did. Um, very young, you know, 28 years old, uh, an absolute wunderkind. This girl was painting like Picasso at the age of 14. She was a total wunderkind. And uh, so I have all of her work. I've inherited it and I'm working on a book about it. It's going to be a long process. And I actually, you know, when it comes to asking for help, I actually need help with the photography of the book because, uh, you know, I bought this little digital camera, but I can't get the lighting right. I can't get the focus right. Um, so if anyone at all is interested in helping with this project, who is a professional photographer, uh, feel free to contact me. and uh, Let me know. Nice. Well, I'm no professional photographer, but uh, I have a decent camera and I know my way around it. So if I if I pay you a visit in Santa Fe, I can help you with some photographs. Yeah, because you're just an hour away. Yeah, that's right. You're in Albuquerque. Yeah, you I definitely, I definitely hope that to come say hi. Let's take a look. Yeah, I'd Great. love to. Albuquerque. Whenever, sure. whenever, I've actually been to, I, when, I was, when I was driving across country one time, I've been to Albuquerque. But whenever I think of it, I, I can't help but think of Breaking Bad. It's like the first thing that, that oh, comes yeah. to my <laughs> Yeah. We all yeah. were breaking back a whole group of hypermoderns, uh, Mary and Michael and I and Brian. Yeah, that show is the bomb. And I still haven't been to the house. Have you, Justin? Have you? No, I haven't. I, I much admired the show. I, I enjoyed it a lot. But no, I haven't been to the house. I should do that. Yeah, I'd love to do that. So there's one little uh, bit of advice also coming in, which I forgot. And someone reprimanded me for not noticing it. But um, EV says that you need groipers. Groypers is their advice. Um, so memes, I guess, uh, make memes of groypers. 
What a I don't great- know. I don't know if that's a. I don't know if that's like a subculture you want to dabble in, but uh, that is. I'm just reporting the advice. Well, what are groipers? Uh, groipers are that kind of like vague, amorphous, frog-looking character that you see on Twitter in like oh, many yeah, different. Right. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, he associated with the alt right, though, isn't that? Yeah, yeah, that's the problem with them. Yes. Uh, I'd rather not mess with their iconology. Yeah. Well, like many memes, you know, I think it's much more complicated than that. I. I I actually don't. I, I, w- I would say that uh, as someone who studies Internet subcultures, I would say that the the actual ideological, you know, significance of, of the Groiper is actually much more elusive and, and, and ambiguous than that. But, yes, in many people's minds, uh, it is it does have that connotation. So yeah. I like the Wrangler meme idea better, though. Okay. <laughs> there you go. There you uh, go. Anyhow. Cool. Cool. Um, there's a question here from Lou, uh, who says, do you guys have a name for this group? Is it just the hyper moderns, the, yes, yeah. the New Mexico circle or the Ebert round table? Uh, are, is that, are, how did you, yeah, yeah, I would it. like to know more about this. Like, how did you all meet? Like what, what? Yeah. Uh, we all met one at a time over the internet. Um, yeah, you know, oh, we've John. been bashing it here, well, but yeah. John, John. What? Go ahead. I was say, I mean, like, like, to be honest, we all kind of like the five core members of, of our little group, John, Michael, myself, Chris Boyd, who, who's a British artist and, and Mary, who's no longer with us. We all kind of gathered around John. I mean, that's the truth of the matter is that right. John was kind of like uh, making his videos on YouTube, writing his books, and then each of us in our own way. And almost to be honest with you, we each contacted John in the exact same way. We came across this stuff on YouTube and we kind of contacted him and then, we each developed individual friendships with John. I mean, Mary's was a, ro- a, a, a romantic relationship, but Michael, myself, and Chris developed a kind of working um, correspondence with John. At least I did for the past. Me and John, we've been talking now since 2013 or 14, I think. And for yeah. the past two years, we've been talking, you know, 50 times a day, probably. Um, and then about a year and a half ago, that's when Michael and John and a couple other people had had met out at the what what was the name of that festival that you guys went to? It was some kind of oh, the Santa Fe uh, Interplanetary Festival. The the Santa Fe, and that's kind of like it was last year. Yeah, and then and then I I think like earlier this year, as this book was being written by me and John, and Michael was writing the intro, we kind of decided to kind of the, these five core members of the group, and then you know it's it's open, you know. We're we are non-exclusive, cool. so but it's 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 just this idea of um, circulating ideas around this mem or, or concept of hypermodernity. So yeah, right, cool, cool. So yeah, I personally want to just kind of start to wrap this up uh, with a few questions, if you don't mind, if you still have the energy about publishing and uh, sure. self-publishing and the kind of the contemporary economy of publishing, because. Uh, both of you, it sounds like have, have some experience with this. Now I know John has a lot, but it sounds like you too also, Brian, and a lot of the people that have come uh, to, to be interested in my work and my writing and, and these live streams. I know a lot, I talk with a lot of people and a lot of people in the audience are bloggers or different types of kind of eccentric, independent intellectual types who are looking to potentially self-publish books uh, or, or whatever the case might be. And so I want to just kind of pick your brains about this for a little bit before I let you go. Um, as as people who have published in different types of contexts, do you have, maybe I'll just start by asking, you know, for, for a young independent intellectual who wants to write their own book and, and probably self-publish it, um, any, you know, 
tips or tricks that people should be aware of that they that they are unlikely to find just by Googling? I mean, I think it's pretty easy to do it. I mean, you know, there's a certain process of, of kind of uh, getting a system in place of, of, of designing your cover and no, knowing how to format it and so on and so forth. But, but once that is, um, is known, it's, it's pretty, I, I think the main thing is just deciding whether or not for this specific book, you want to self-publish or you, you want to go through some publisher. I mean, what, I mean, for me, I think with my novel, I'm definitely going to seek out for sure going to seek out traditional publishing, but for these theoretical books that I'm writing, and I, I have several more in the wings over the next year, probably five or six more that I'm, that I'm working on. Um, I think for me, it's just easier to set up a, a, um, I don't even really try to get publishing anymore. You know, the, mm -hmm. the one time I did, it was accepted and that was great. But for me, it's, it's like, I'm going to set up my own imprint and, and actually me, me and John are in the process of setting up an, an imprint together called Hypermodern Press. And we're going to start publishing our, our own stuff. A novel is, is, is a bit of a different situation, but um, so, yeah, I mean, we want to get our work out there. And uh, and so, I mean, I think for a young, a young intellectual who who uh, or an old intellect or any intellectual that yeah. wants to publish, I mean, it's it's totally doable and yeah. it's fairly easy. And I think you should go for it. You know, you have a word here about the process, yeah. the contrast between traditional publishing as opposed to self-publishing and the main thing is time. With, with a traditional publisher, it takes a very long time. First of all, you have yes. to decide whether you want to find an agent to sell it for you. Then the, if you can find an agent, then that agent spends a year trying to sell it. And if they can't, then it goes back to you. And now you have to spend a year trying to find a publisher. Once the, you find the publisher, it generally takes about a year again for, the book, for them to bring the book out, even after accepting it. So it's a very long process. Um, there's that. And there's also the fact that they take most of your money. Uh, most people don't know this probably, but they, they take 90% of your royalties, leave you with 10%. And there's also a control issue involved. Um, I got tired of publishers. You know, my first five books were published with traditional publishers. Um, I got tired of them telling me to change titles, chapter title, delete this. Oh, write this essay. You know, um, I just got tired of that. And I, liked the idea of having complete total creative control. So I taught myself the process of using InDesign, which is an agony for me. It's, you know, I, I throw tantrums at it, um, very difficult. And I taught myself how to do the covers and I, but I don't have any graphic design skills. So the covers aren't that great, but it doesn't really matter. Um, so I taught myself how to do everything myself. So um, what you get from me is just 100% me. There's been no creative interference uh, whatsoever. And that has been the same for our hypermodernity book, by the way. Um, I think we, that if we had gone with a traditional publisher uh, with a modernity book, I, I think it would not be the same book. They would have made us change things, delete things, move things around. Uh, and Brian and I would like having control. We know what we're doing. So that that's the thing. You just, it depends on what, what you want to do. But, you know, the, the benefit of going with a, with a, a traditional publisher is ultimately you might sell a lot more copies. Maybe it'll be a bestseller. So there's always this huge temptation uh, to wait out the process, the gamble, and then see if they can market it for you and make you some real money. And in most cases, it's just simply not going to happen. You're going to wait three to four years. It's going to come out, and it, you'll be lucky if it makes a dime. 
I mean, that's just the reality of how this market works. It is extremely difficult to make a living uh, as an intellectual publishing uh, books. Uh, people don't realize that. It's, right, right. Um, and so, Brian, for you, like, uh, how would you compare your experience with zero books to your self-publishing experiences? Like, tell us uh, pros and cons uh, in that comparison. No, zero, zero was great. I mean, it was uh, they published my book, The Meaning of Trump. They did it fairly quickly, and they didn't change too much. So it was actually fairly similar for me. But I absolutely agree with John in the sense that I that was probably um, – I don't know if it was luck or what what it was, but I mean, um, um, I I think, you know, I think for me with with my theoretical work, I'll continue to probably to self publish or, or publish under an imprint. What I'll probably publish under an imprint with John. That's that's the plan and Michael, and that's that's the plan for the three of us to do under Hypermodern Press. And then for my creative work, I'll definitely seek out traditional publishing for sure. Yeah, you yeah, know, I have a question. So. So for like a, for a small press such as Zero Books, I mean, do they even get you that many more readers than you can get for yourself, really? Like, no, I, no, really. no. I mean, yeah, some of my self-published books have, 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 have sold more than The Meaning of Trump. Really? Yeah. I mean, how is that even possible given that, like, pr- presumably you can sell your Zero Book, your Zero Books book as much as you can sell yourself published. So is that saying that literally they provide, they, they give you almost no not new, no unique readers other than those you can get for yourself. I don't know. I, yeah, don't know. I mean, like, you know, that's, that's a small publisher. So they didn't really have a huge marketing budget to, to push the book. And, you know, right. that, that was actually a, a little bit frustrating for me to be honest with you. Cause I, I actually thought that that meaning of, and I don't know if John agrees with this, but I, I thought that meaning of Trump book was one of the most solid analysis of, of Donald Trump as a president. That had yeah. It was great. It like, should have a much quieter. Like, right. and like by anywhere, like in big New York publishers. So I, I was a little bit sad, I guess is the word. I don't know. I mean, I just thought that book and, you know, Trump's still present. So that book is still totally relevant. Right. But I mean, I, I thought that book had a tremendous amount of potential that was not actualized at all. Tremendous. Yeah. So, it's money. But it's really revealing to learn that your self-published books sold more copies than your zero. But I mean, I mean, but, but, but we're not talking about a lot more. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. it's but in the ballpark. They're all in the ballpark. That, that's what I would say. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 I, w- I just want to say this first thing about the marketing here with my first book. My first book was done uh, by a San Francisco publisher, a small one, but it was one that had money uh, because it had just been bought by the guy who owns Sky Vodka. Uh, and so this guy had money. And so he, we were allowed to have a budget to do a book tour um, you know, I went to all these cities on the West Coast, did all these readings. This was all the good old fashioned way that that process is done. And the book sold about 4,000 copies. Still to this day, my best selling book as a result of them hiring market uh, publicists. They hired two publicists uh, to get me gigs. Um, you know, I was on uh, Science Friday, um, all these radio gigs and television gigs. Uh, but they got to have a budget for that. And most of the presses that we're talking about here who publish the kinds of things that the three of us are interested in just simply don't have the money to do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you can't fault quality or zero books or one of these small or uh, semi attacks for not putting up a lot of money. I mean, right. this, this is a very niche field. And, but at, at the same time, I think it's an incredible, I mean, one of the reasons why I don't make any money right, writing these theoretical books, maybe a little bit, you know, but it's certainly not. I mean, I, I own a business down here and I, whatever. I mean, that like, I do other things, but 
the point is, is that this work is incredibly important. And I believe in this work very, very, very deeply, what John and I are doing and what these other people like Franco Barati and Byung Chul Han and, and all these other people that I deeply admire. I mean, to me, like theorists in the 21st century, I mean, these are like artists, really. I mean, these are the new artists. And this is, this is incredibly important work. And that's why for me, I think that I'll be writing uh, theory till the day I die. Truly. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm committed to doing this, committed to doing this for the rest of my life. Nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. no. And it's no matter of uh, knocking or ragging on polity or zero books or semi. No, not or anything. All. Not, not yeah, all. but it's more like my interest in this is in part because I've talked with firsthand so many people who watch my stuff and read my blog and stuff like that, who are really smart and capable and they're aspiring intellectuals and maybe they have a blog, maybe they have a book idea. And I hear from a lot of these uh, often younger people who um, are really anxious and kind of um, paralyzed by their aspirations to be accepted by some sort of institution, whether it be a book publisher or grad school or whatever the case might be. And so it's like there are a lot of people probably listening to this right now who could absolutely write a book in the next six months, the next 12 months, and it would be good and people would read it and people would buy it. And they're not actually working on that book. Because they feel in their minds, they have to get like zero books to approve of it or something like that. Right. And that, and that, and they experience that as an obstacle and a blockage. And so it's really, really important to share this type of data with people yeah, because people man. have to realize that actually like, there's nothing wrong with that. There, there are advantages and there can be useful aspects to having a publisher like zero books, but they're not actually going to sell any books for you other than the books that you can already sell for yourself. I mean, that's really important data for people to realize. Right. That's yeah. Right. I mean, they might, they might not, but if they do, it's not going to be a tremendous amount. And at the same time, there's always this thing in the world called luck, right? Where you, where you get a, you know, so, I mean, you can never predict this entirely, but I think what, right. what you're saying is, is generally correct, you know, generally correct. Yeah. And the other, the other idea, if, you know, if anybody's listening that wants to do this is get together with a few other people and, and, and get your own imprint going, you know, and, and get a group together. I mean, start, I, I think, and this is the, part of the book, this kind of radical sense of individualization and this, 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 it's you against the world. I mean, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, ha, I mean, me, since, since me and John and Michael, since we hooked up with each other, I mean, there's a feeling of solidarity here. There's a feeling of friendship. Like we're in this together and if it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell the, the sun rises tomorrow. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But we're committed to this work. We're going to keep doing it. And then whatever happens, it's in God's hands, as they say. It's in, it's, it's, we do the work and the rest is not up to us. Yep. Let the, let the you chips know? fall where they may. Let, let the chips fall where they may. Exactly. Well, guys, this is really fun and I really appreciate it. You, you taking the time to uh, talk with me and hang out with me. Was there anything else you wanted to uh, get on the record real quick uh, before we wrap it up? Well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm just personally like to say thank you to you for inviting us on. I think this was a great yeah. conversation. Definitely. I want to tell people that the link to the book is in the description below this. So, uh, yeah, if you're interested in the book, go ahead and order it now. It's it, the, the link is right there. So um, it's on Amazon. So you can buy it directly from, from Amazon. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, yeah, this was this was really interesting and edifying chat. Um, and we've got two more of these coming. So this is just one. We've got the, two hyper, the hyper, the hyper modern trilogy yep. is calling it. Absolutely. Right. Maybe actually someone did ask about that. Could you tell us a brief word about what, the, what to expect with the other two volumes? Yeah. Well, Brian should do that. I think well, Yo, you, you want to keep just, it. It's, 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 uh, we don't want to get too into, get too into it. But what I will say is that we're, the third volume is kind of much more 
interested in spirituality and, and cosmic questions than the political and economic and cultural questions that we address in one and two. That's what I'd say. Okay. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I, yeah. that, that, that's good. That's uh, tantalizing, but also somewhat, uh, you know, informative. So good. Yeah. Good. All right, guys. Well, thanks again. Uh, let's stay in touch for sure. Uh, let me know if there's anything else I can do to, to help you guys out. I'd love to see you guys succeed. It sounds like really good work. And, and, oh, and I should tell people I did read uh, good chunks of the book. I, I didn't have the time to read all of it. Dave, John was nice enough to uh, send it over to me. And uh, yeah, it's the real deal. You know, you guys are the real deal. And this is one of the reasons why I really like John and why John's been on my radar for a long time is because, um, you know, a lot of people who kind of like do self-publishing uh, some of the, you know, it's very, it's high variance, let's say. Right. Um, but, but you guys are like legit high level, you know, real deal intellectuals. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really glad to see you guys doing what you're doing so independently. I think there's going to be more and more of this. I think, I think we're only at the beginning of this. That's and, really uh, yeah. It's very encouraging. It's, it's very encouraging. To, to, yeah. Thank to, you, Justin. Thank you very right. much. Absolutely. I mean, I, Brian, I don't know if you know anything about my story, but uh, I actually recently left academia. I had a kind of long-term successful academic career. I started kind of getting into trouble with my independent creative work on the internet. And basically had a, it push came to shove and I kind of had to decide what I wanted to do. And I basically decided to go all in on the outside as it were, and just be yeah. a kind of radically independent digital first nomad. intellectual nomad, nomad of some kind. Yeah. And I only did that a few months ago. So, um, but basically this is my life decisions have all been influenced by people like John and people and many other people who, uh, you know, I'm just paying close attention to what's really going on and which way the winds are blowing. And it seems to me just undeniable that, uh, things like self-publishing are going to become increasingly popular and increasingly normal, even for the, the the highest quality people, you know, for a little while, it was like a low status thing where, you know, you would only kind of do self-publishing if you couldn't get published by better publishers. But now we're at this kind of crossover point where even for the most authentic, high level, you know, sophisticated intellectuals, I think totally. it, we're now at the point where it's increasingly just the best choice either way. And I think it's, so it's a really exciting time. And that's why I'm very interested in people like you all and why you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge supporter of, of projects such as yours. And I'm, I'm now embarking on doing similar things myself and trying to also support other people, younger people, especially who write to me um, with, with these types of aspirations. So yeah, it's a really interesting time and you guys represent kind of the cutting edge of it. So I, thanks for hanging I out. Think with me. You made the right okay. decision. Uh, thanks, John. thanks, John. Appreciate that. Well, I'll keep, you post I'll, I'll keep you posted on it for sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'll let you guys go now. Okay. Thanks again. And take, take care. Okay. Justin. Thanks, Justin. Bye. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.